What is this thing called the Christian life? That's the big question as we enter Romans 8. And the answer to these questions, how do I know how, how, do I know how to live? How do I know I will live? How do I know I will make it to the end under this thing called grace? How do I live the Christian life? The answer to these questions is the main theme of Romans 8. And the main theme that we just barely scratched the surface of tonight, the main theme of the entire chapter of Romans 8, is the absolute assurance of the children of God, that there is a rock solid, unbreakable, unshakable assurance for the Christian, even though, like in Romans 7, we may find ourselves at times seeing things within us at war, right? We don't feel the grace that we've been told is true of us. But tonight, Paul points us to a power, a power that now is in us. A power that lives in us. But not only does it live in us, it lives through us. And by this power, we begin to understand this assurance that we're going to explore into, uh, for the next couple of weeks. And we begin to understand how to lay hold of it with our lives. John Stott says it best. I have the quote for you there in your handout. The Christian life is essentially life in the Spirit. A life which is animated, sustained, directed, and enriched by the Holy Spirit. Again, it sounds too good to be true. Let's read this here as it comes to us. God's Word, Romans chapter 8, the first 13 verses. There is therefore those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, but not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body... You will live. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand 
forever. Three things I want to look at tonight as we begin this deep and wide chapter of the Bible. And the first one is this, all of them having to do with the Spirit. Life in the Spirit. Paul has told us uh, uh, some 30-something times he has talked about the law. He has mentioned the law by name in Romans 7. And now some 20 times in the first 17 verses of Romans 8, he will talk about the Spirit. Life in the Spirit. And the first thing we see that Paul says here right out of the gate is that we have been set free. The Spirit has set us free. We've been set free by the Spirit. And he says it like this in in verse 1, and we've seen language like this before. And here it is once again. There is therefore now no condemnation. You would have thought we would have gotten this by now, but here Paul is again, most emphatically in the way, most emphatic way he can. There is therefore now no condemnation. This is Paul's grand summary statement of everything he's been working toward. This is why so many people hold this chapter dear or consider it the best chapter in the Bible. Because Paul takes everything he's been talking about as he's unrolled these grand truths and implications of the gospel. And now he turns its attention to how it works itself out in life. How it changes us. How it empowers us. How it transforms us. Because we want to know, what is this going to do? It's beautiful, Paul, but what is it going to do? And he begins with something that's not new in the letter. And what's beautiful to me is the first word in the Greek of verse 1 is no. The first word as Paul begins this grand transition to this great chapter is no, none, nothing, no condemnation. It is nowhere to be found. We all need a righteousness before God. To live. We all have zero righteousness in and of ourselves to stand before God. And God's holy law condemns us where we stand, whether we know it or not. But you, Christian, there is no condemnation. Not an ounce of it. But not by the law. The law can only produce sin and death in us because we're of the flesh. No, we've been set free by the spirit of life, Paul says here. Right? Because God has done, look what he says, because God has done what the law weakened by our flesh could not do. He sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now that's important. It's not the likeness of flesh. He really was in the flesh, but he wasn't sinful. So it's the likeness of sinful flesh. And in him, he condemned sin in the flesh. Therefore, if you are in him, there's no condemnation because he's already born every ounce of it in his own body. It sounds familiar, right? (laughs) I think we've been here every week. And, you know, some weeks, to be honest, I struggle with, what am I going to say? Just, I run out of things. This time of year, I fly through Christmas. I, I somewhat somehow make it through January, February. I'm just like, I don't know what's happening. I get back from spring break, and I'm like, where is my mind? And then I'm comforted by the fact that as much as Paul has talked about it, he cannot get away from this glorious truth. There is no condemnation. And he's not going to stop saying it. Because it never gets less important. And you've got to understand the reason he keeps saying it is one, because it's so true. But two, for some reason, it is the one thing that we keep forgetting. 
You want to learn how to live the Christian life, you've got to start where God starts. And that's with a proclamation, a proclamation about you. If you are in Jesus, there is nothing that can stand between you and the Father because there's no condemnation. The Christian life, you want to know about the Christian life. What is the Christian life? What do we, how do I do the Christian life? Why do I feel so bad about this thing called the Christian life? Because the Christian life can only be understood, it can only begin, and it is only founded upon a proclamation about you. There's no condemnation. The thing is, and this is kind of what he went into in Romans 7, the Christian life doesn't begin because all of a sudden you don't have sin anymore or you don't struggle anymore or you don't fail anymore. We know all too well those things are there, right? That's why we struggle with the thing called the Christian life. And we wonder, are we doing it wrong? No, the Christian life begins because there is not one sin that could ever stand in between you and God ever again. Not a sin in the past, not a sin in your present, and not a sin in your future, if you are in Christ. There's not one sin that could ever possibly condemn you. But this is the tension, right, that he took up in Romans 7. It's like, you keep telling me this, Paul, but I feel condemned. And he says, because you haven't heard the gospel. There's no condemnation. Should you feel bad about your sin? Yes, because sin is sin. Sin is why Jesus died. Should I feel bad? Yes. Should I feel condemned? Absolutely not. Because he's already condemned it in his son. It's already been paid for. And you already have a full and unfettered righteousness, fast and free in him by his grace. But how can I, you know, at the end of seven, he said, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But thanks be to God, right? How can you feel wretched yet give thanks? Because I've been set free. That's it. One of my favorite hymns goes like this. What though the vile accuser roar of sins that I had done, I know them well. And thousands more. But my God, he knoweth none. He knoweth none. The psalmist says, he has put my iniquity away from me as far as the east is from the west. There's no condemnation. How? Because he sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and condemned sin. He condemned my sin in Jesus begins with a proclamation. There's an interesting parable. Um, you could even call it baffling in some ways. In Matthew chapter 18 that Jesus tells. It's about this servant that we're told that there was a servant in the court of the king on trial because he owed the king some 10,000 talents. Okay? A talent, one talent, was about 20 years earnings. So with, that, with a good life expectancy in that day... You're saying this man owed 10,000 lifetimes of income to the king. He pleads with the king, though. And Jesus tells us that the king heard his plea and forgave him his debt. 
And there's a lot of, of his absurdities to the parable. One, how could one person rack up debt of 10,000 lifetimes? That doesn't even seem possible. How could then someone just for, wipe that away? Like, how could somebody just forgive that, right? But the grandest absurdity is how Jesus ends the parable because he says that that same servant that was forgiven 10,000 lifetimes of debt, he goes back out into his real life and he comes across a fellow servant that owed him a hundred denaria. Denari, well, denarius was one day's wage. So a hundred days wage. This man has just been forgiven 10,000 lifetimes of wages. And he has a friend that owes him a hundred days of wages. And we're told that that servant beat his fellow servant and demanded that the money be paid back. And so the king hears of it, rescinds his forgiveness and throws the man in jail. And Jesus says, so shall it be to you. <laughs> and you're kind of going, uh-oh, right? What gives? What gives? I don't have time to go into the parable in all its um, intricacy, but at least one thing Jesus is saying about this sermon, servant. Here is someone who had been offered full and free forgiveness, but who had not been set free. He had not been set free for one other, for one reason uh, or another. Um, whether he just didn't understand what he'd been offered, whether he thought it wasn't forgiveness, he thought it was a second chance, whether he thought he still owed the debt and needed to pay it back, or whether he thought it was up to him to never go into debt again. He had not been set free. We want so badly to know how to live this thing called the Christian life. We want so badly to see the power of the Spirit that Paul and others keep talking about in our lives, right? Do you know the freedom that is yours in Christ? Because if you do not get that, you don't get the Spirit. You see, what Paul is saying here is that the work of Christ and the work of the Spirit go hand in hand. They cannot be separated, not one centimeter. They go hand in hand. They cannot be separated. And so we're set free. For what? And this launches us into the next part. For what are we set free? Look at verse 4. <laughs> Just to sum up verse 4, we're set free so we can obey the law. Wait, what? Right? Because, get this, because of what Jesus has done for us, we are set free from the condemnation of the law that our sin deserves. And because of the Spirit and what He is doing in us, we are set free now to obey it. To find life in it instead of death. The Spirit comes and He follows through with what Jesus has done, for, what God has done for us in Jesus. The full power, get this, this is what Paul is laying out for us at the outset. And it works itself out the rest of the chapter. What God, the full power of the full gospel, the key to this thing called the Christian life, is that God has done what the law could not do. God has made provision for my justification. He has made provision for a righteousness that I could not get on my own. That I could not get on any effort of mine. And He has also, though, made provision for my sanctification, my growth, my holiness. 
Christ's work for us, Spirit's work in us, they go hand in hand. And if you separate them, it's death. But when they're hand in hand, we're set free. The Spirit sets us free. And so the next natural question is, okay, I get it, but how do I live in light of this? We've got to do something else. And this is what Paul kind of moves on to. There's a few contrasts here, but the main one here is what are you setting your mind on? What are you setting your mind on? This is the second thing here. Setting, set your mind on the spirit, Paul says. And so we think we, he started talking about what are you setting your mind on? And we think, okay, is this like the biblical version of the, of the power of positive thinking? And hardly no one knows like the origin of that phrase or the book that it came from. But that worldview is so ingrained in so many people, right? Well, I just got to block all the negativity in my life. Like you're a negative person, so I just need you out. Right. And if I just get enough negative out of my life, then everything is positive. Like the balances of my life shift positive and everything's good. And what's even more scary is how incipient that is in our Christianity in some uh, corners, some corners way too close to home. Right. Obviously, this is more than balances between positivity and negativity, because what Paul says is at stake here is life and death. This thing called the Christian life, there's two things at stake, life or death. Okay, the key to life or death is whether you're in the flesh or in the spirit. The key to flesh or spirit is what you're setting your mind on. Are you setting your mind on the things of the flesh? Are you setting your mind on the things of the spirit? And there's a key here which helps us understand. There's a key here that helps us understand the servant in Jesus' parable in Matthew 18 and how susceptible we are to be just like him. Even if we've heard the gospel and we understand how glorious it is, we can fall into the same trap. There's something that happens to so many of us when we become Christians. Or maybe not when we become Christians, but maybe we're at college and we're all too aware that if I'm left to my own devices, I'm going to fall away. I'm going to backslide or I'm just going to be all gone and nobody's going to be able to bring me back, right? And so we tell ourselves... Man, it is time to get spiritually serious. I got, I got to get this thing together. I'm a Christian now. I'm forgiven. I need to get with it. But do you find it interesting that when Paul says that we're no longer condemned and that we're now, uh, God's going to do something in us to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law in us, he doesn't say, hey, here's this great salvation, so freaking clean your life up here. Get it together. Hey, here's salvation. You better get it together. Doesn't say that. He says we need the Spirit. But you see, when I say I'm a Christian now or I need to get serious about my faith, I've got to get my act together. You've fallen for the fatal flaw. You're already there. Paul doesn't say, go and change your life then. Hey, gospel's great, so go change your life. Doesn't say that. The moment you've done that, you're right back putting your mind on the things of the flesh. It's not too hard. There's many ways we could talk about the flesh-spirit distinction, but let's not get too hyper-spiritual or wordy with it. Let's just say the flesh is about me, about what I want, what I can do, and what I can control. And the spirit is everything that I am not naturally inclined to. Not only am I not naturally inclined to it, Paul says... That if my mind's set on the flesh, verse 7, it's actually hostile to God. If I'm concentrated on me and what I can do and what I need to do, if that is my focus, if that is my energy and my power, 
It's actually a hostility to God because it doesn't want to submit to God. Indeed, he says, it cannot. Something interesting, Paul writes a whole letter about this issue to the church at Galatia. He preached the gospel to them. They believed, and he saw genuine faith in them. But he hears a report, and they have forsaken the gospel. They are trying to live the Christian life, but they are not doing it with the gospel. And Paul says something interesting to them in in verse 3 of chapter 3. He says, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? If the Spirit is the one that has given you life, then how can you live by the flesh? If the Spirit has given you life, then it only makes sense then that you would proceed living by the Spirit. And many of us, we fall in the same trap. We think we get it. I can't do anything to save myself. I need Jesus. I prayed a prayer. I walked an aisle. I wrote my name on a card. I nailed my sins to some board that some guy put up front. And I don't know where that board it is in somebody's garage, but hey, it's there. I did it, right? But when it comes to living the Christian life, what are we saying to ourselves? Here it is. I can give you the the great campus minister question when I have coffee with you. How are you doing spiritually? Think about the question. If I was with you and you thought of me as a pastor, and I just, I want to know, how are you doing spiritually in this world called college, right? Where did your mind just go? Think about it. Where did your mind just go? To the question, how are you doing spiritually? Did the name of Jesus come anywhere close to the answer? Or did you immediately think about what you did this past weekend? Or where you've been this semester? Or where you went on spring break? Whatever it is. Is Jesus anywhere in the picture? If you begin with Jesus and the Spirit, what are you continuing with? Wouldn't it make sense that we continue with the same Jesus and the same Spirit every step of the way? This is exactly what happened with the unforgiving servant. He's offered this great and unimaginable forgiveness. But when he's back on the street, when he's back to his regular life, when he's back in chem lab or I hate science, whatever, something like that that I hate, um, that would kill me. Um, Give me Harry Potter classes all day. Um, They used to have that. I think they still do. Um, But when he gets back on the street, when he gets back into his real life, In his mind, he's right back where he was, in debt, in slavery, or at least in fear of it. In other words, though he has not been held accountable to his old debt, he's living his life as as if his life depended on it. Saving Private Ryan, is, there, there was like a slew of World War II movies over a span of like the mid-90s into the early 2000s. Saving Private Ryan was one of the best ones. Uh, it was with Tom Hanks. It's about shortly after D-Day, uh, this little uh, crew of soldiers is sent deep into enemy li- behind enemy lines to recover or to save, you got it, Private Ryan, uh, Matt Damon. Uh, and the reason is, yeah, um, the, Kevin Bourne. Uh, no, but Private Ryan... 
Uh, and the reason is he's, he had two or three brothers also in the war, and they've all died. And so the army is like, we're getting him and we're sending him home so this family doesn't lo- lose every one of their sons. And so this little, little squad of soldiers is behind enemy lines. They're suffering and they're dying for this guy named Private Ryan, and they have no idea who he is, right? They finally get him. There's this epic battle. And it's pretty awesome. And at the end of it, as one of his newfound friends that has saved his life, is, uh, his, his life is coming to an end. He grabs him close and he says to Ryan, earn this. Right? Ryan had done nothing to get saved, right? These soldiers had done it all. And the man looks at him and says, earn this. And the scene ends and we fast forward, what, 40 years to present day, um, the, 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 where all the graves are in D.C., the name escapes me. Um, and he comes upon the grave of one of these men that saved his life. And he falls to his knees, and he's broken, and he's weeping, and his wife comes close to comfort him, and he grabs her, and he says, Tell me I'm a good man. Tell me I've lived a good life. Ryan had been saved, right? But he hadn't been freed. He'd lived the rest of his life thinking he owed something, right? For so many of you, this is, this is the way you've heard the gospel. It breaks my heart. Look at what Jesus has done for you. What are you going to do for him? Jesus never comes anywhere close to saying anything like that. Ever. Look at this great love with which I've loved you. You better love me good. Earn this. What does the gospel tell us? It tells us again and again and again that God has done in Jesus what the law or you with the law or you with your own law cannot do. So then how could the rest of the Christian life be founded upon what you cannot do? Your salvation as a Christian is the same as your life as a Christian. It's entirely founded upon what someone else has done for you. And now it's entirely founded upon that same power at work within you. How? Because he put his spirit in you. Verse 9. You aren't in the flesh. If you are in Christ, you aren't in the flesh. You're in the Spirit. Why? Because the Spirit is in you. It's not some higher plane to attain. If you are in Christ, He is in you because His Spirit is in you. John 14 is probably the fullest exposition of the Spirit that Jesus Himself, or at least the record of record we have of Jesus Himself talking about the Spirit. It's the night that He's betrayed. He's with his disciples for the last time, and they're trying to piece the puzzle together because Jesus has been saying for days and weeks and months, and now he's reiterating, I'm going to leave you. And they're starting to piece the puzzle together and saying, like, wait, no, I don't want that to happen. And they're getting confused, and they're getting worried, and they're getting sad. And Jesus says to them, if I go, I go to prepare a place for you that where I'm going, you may be also. But that's not all he says. He said, but if I go, I'm going to send another helper to you. And he will be with you, he says, and he will be in you. He, I go to prepare a place for you. He will come and prepare a place for me in you. 
1420, John, the Gospel of John, Jesus says, In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. In that day you will know. So what does it mean to set your mind on the Spirit? What does it mean? It's to desire what He desires. To look at what He looks at. And what is that? This is the beauty of it. It's Jesus. The Spirit's work is to show you Jesus. And as He shows you Jesus, you know what He's doing? He's forming Jesus in you. Paul puts it like this in Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Jesus Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Set your mind on the Spirit. And this begins to happen by the grace and power of the gospel. Then finally we begin to see what it is, the Christian life. The Christian life, number three there, is living by the Spirit. Look at verse 13. He puts it like this. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So what Paul says is happening here is that there is a life that leads to death. There's a kind of living that leads to death and it's living in the flesh. It's looking at my life and saying, I got to get control of this. Yeah, you do. But how in the world are you going to do it? It's the way of death. But there is a death that leads to life. I actually am actively putting my sin to death. Those things that haunt me, those things that accuse me, those things that keep bubbling up, those things that I try to rip away and rip away and rip away. And every time I do, they just seem to come back stronger. Paul says there's actually a way that those things are put to death once and for all. How is it? I could not help but think of my absolute favorite illustration from the Chronicles of Narnia. A voyage of the Dawn Treader. Lucy and Edmund are uh, the two pim- two of the four Pevensey children who go back into Narnia in this book. Uh, but their cousin, their bratty little cousin Eustace, somehow uh, gets into Narnia with them, and they're on this big adventure on the Dawn Treader, a ship. Um, and they end up on this island, and Eustace gets separated from the group, and he finds this huge pile of treasure. Uh, Just what a bratty little boy who thinks he owns the world needs. And he falls asleep, dreaming of what the world would be like now that he had this treasure. But something happens. He wakes up. He feels a little different. And he looks down. And he realizes he's a dragon. And this is how Lewis puts it. He says, sleeping on a dragon's hoard with greedy, dragonish thoughts in his heart, he had become a dragon himself. He spends the next few days flying around the island trying to communicate with the people, but it's a dra- he's a dragon, so they're scared, and he doesn't know what to do. And so finally, he goes out, he's a dragon, and he begins ripping away at his flesh. 
And it says the first time he cut deep and he peeled his flesh right off and he watched it on the ground. But then he looked down and it was still there. And so he did it again. He cut and he cut and he peeled and he peeled and he laid it on the ground next to him and he looked down and he was still the same. And the more he tried, the more he failed. But then he meets this mysterious lion whom his idiot cousins had mentioned, but he didn't believe. And the lion comes up to him and says this, you're going to have to let me undress you. And this is how Lewis records, or this is how Eustace records it. He says, I was afraid of his claws. I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and I let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. When he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I had ever felt. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off. And just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. I turned into a boy again. When we hear the gospel, when we follow Jesus, we follow him, and he told us this explicitly. We follow him to a cross. And the question of the Christian life is what will you put to death there? Because Paul makes it pretty clear in verse 13 that there is something for us to do. There are things for us to put to death, clearly pointing to something we have to do. But the point is, we can't do it. Not if we're still dragons. Not if we're still in the flesh. We do it, he says, by the Spirit, His agency, His power Not on us. Not on us. In us. The same Spirit that dwelt in union and communion on Jesus Himself as He walked this earth. The same Spirit, God tells us, that raised Jesus from the dead. He doesn't work on you. He works within you. And you didn't do anything to get it. But Jesus put him there. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Paul says something pretty daunting. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God in you. Both to will and to work. Spiritus Sancti. In us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your spirit. We thank you for the life that is ours in him. Even when it feels like death. Father, would you give us this life? Would you give it to us abundantly? 
We pray by your spirit. In our Savior's name. Amen.